0: This is a, a very big win for us, and we're, we're very happy with that.
1: Every second that we're still funding the fossil fuel industry, there are communities in the world on the front lines of this crisis that are suffering.
2: I think most people in power still have the, you're too young for this, the adults are talking attitude with us. Hello, and welcome to Switchboard, Bath
3: flagship podcast. My name is Isabel Roberts.
4: And I'm Maddie Fisher. Over recent years, there has been increasing focus on the climate crisis.
3: At Cambridge, students and staff have been campaigning for the university and its colleges to reduce their carbon footprint, primarily through divesting.
4: Divestment is the process of selling off investments. In this case, those that are linked to unethical companies, particularly those causing environmental damage.
3: And earlier this year on the 1st of October these campaigners saw a success as Cambridge University announced that their 3.5 billion endowment fund will be fully divested from fossil fuels and refocused towards investments in renewable energy by 2030.
4: So today we speak to Cambridge campaigners to explore how this decision came about and whether any more needs to be done. Cambridge Zero Carbon Society have been one of the most active organisations pushing for divestment. We spoke to Evan Rowe, a representative of the society, who tells us about their campaigning.
3: Who are Zero Carbon?
0: Zero Carbon is a campaign group from within the student body. We have been working specifically around the issues of divestment, which is getting the university to disinvest its endowment fund from fossil fuel industries with a specific focus on Climate justice and so the social justice aspects as well of, of the climate crisis.
3: Do you think you could explain the difference between direct investment and indirect investment?
0: Sure. So, a direct investment is any specific like shares that the university holds in fossil fuel companies. So, having shares in Shell or BP or something like this. Whereas, indirect investment is where the university has investments in a fund manager and that fund manager puts the different money in lots of different pots many of which might be extractive or fossil fuel industries, which can often make it a lot harder to figure out from the university's perspective where the money is.
3: And so how did zero carbon start? And what were your initial demands?
0: So the society's been around for for many years in sort of different forms. But in 2015, so that's about five years ago, it kind of relaunched with a focus on divestment. So the demand's always been quite simple. It's get, fossil fuel presence off campus. It's divest the endowment fund from fossil fuels and commit to not reinvesting in fossil fuels. Simple as that. And
3: what are your general methods?
0: I like to think of our methods as falling into two camps. There's the kind of direct action-y sort of methods that we take. So that's holding rallies, doing blockades or banner drops. A lot of that is trying to directly pressure the university, you know, cause a bit of a stir and draw attention to the fact that the university has these links with this really extractive and dangerous industry and then the other half of our actions are more working with the university in a way so it's things like going through their their formal processes of of getting graces that's where you deliver a motion to the university council that is signed by a, a lot of the university like fellows and academics or things like signing petitions or organizing these conferences or events that are around the theme of divestment and then there's also i guess another aspect of our work which is sort of research based, which is trying to actually identify what the specific sort of links between the university and fossil fuel industry are.
3: And what have your interactions with the university tended to be like? Are they fairly positive?
0: Um <laughs> it's a good question. <laughs> I'd say they've been mixed. The general story is that we will be pushing the university to do something, demanding what is morally right, i.e. divestment, and the university will be very reluctant to deliver this. So it's historically been somewhat of an antagonistic relationship there where we very much feel like we as students and the staff that support us are trying to drag the university into what we feel is the morally right thing to do. I mean with with the current report and with some of the university staff that we've been working with in the investment office they've been more positive towards divestment and that's sort of what's led to this decision as well and that's been that we've been really happy with that.
4: It's important that not just the central university, but the colleges also examine their environmental impact. Jesus College Climate Justice Campaign are a college-specific environmental campaign who have received a significant amount of media attention due to their eye-catching demonstrations. For example, earlier this year, they staged a demonstration in which some students wore horse masks covered in fake blood, next to the Jesus Horse sculpture. Jesus College Student Union Green Officer and representative of the Jesus College Climate Justice Campaign, Zach Coleman, speaks to us about the society's aims and
3: methods. Who were Jesus College Climate Justice Campaign and how did you come about?
1: First of all, thank you so much for featuring us on this podcast. We are a group of students and some fellows who have started organising to try and call for our college to fully divest from ecocidal industries by the end of 2021 and commit to reaching net zero emissions by 2030 at the latest. We are a group of concerned college members who are terrified at the scale and urgency of the climate crisis and want our college to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. We we really believe it absolutely can lead the way in terms of climate justice-based sustainability policy. We just want to make that future come into being because we really love our college and we think it can be doing a bit better than it is right now.
3: What are the key things that you're pushing the college to do?
1: The main demands are full divestment from ecocidal industries by the end of 2021. A lot of people might have seen that Jesus College partially divested last year. but Actually, that relates to a really small proportion of our overall investment portfolio. So colleges invest some of their money directly, which is what we divested. And that was a really great first step. But in Jesus's case, we invest a lot more of our money indirectly through private fund managers. So we have some money with the Cambridge University Endowment Fund, which has now got a plan to divest. And another big chunk, about £46 million, invested privately through a private investment manager. Now, that money currently doesn't have any criteria around sustainability or various ethical concerns, which restrict what it can be spent on. What we're calling for is... A sort of unequivocal condemnation of those industries which are fueling the climate crisis which is already devastating so many communities. In terms of the second demand we want to achieve net zero emissions by the end of the decade at the very latest. Hughes Hall have already committed to this. It's something that we believe as a college that is actually over 20 times wealthier than Hughes Hall. We're in a really really strong position to do that. Our communities united around it and I mean two years ago we all saw that big landmark report which said we had 12 years left that What that report said was we have, from 2018, 12 years, now 10 years, to cut global emissions in half in order to have just a 50% chance of averting runaway climate breakdown. That's climate breakdown that can't be reversed. It's irreversible. And why are we going for net zero rather than 50% reduction? Is because we're in the UK. The UK is one of the highest historic emitters. We don't have an equal share of that remaining carbon budget. We're a very wealthy institution. We've got a huge amount of privilege and we're a strong community that are united around doing this or should be united around doing this. We believe that what climate justice means is taking that history, that responsibility and that privilege into account when we make our goals. And therefore 2030 is the absolute latest. I mean, really, the UK's contribution is so great to historic commissions that we should reach net zero tomorrow. But we're giving the college a really generous 10-year timeline and we really think that sort of balances those competing interests of practicality and moral responsibility.
3: And so you mentioned that Jesus is one of the Cambridge colleges that's partially divested. And even though you've obviously explained very well why that's not enough, you did achieve that last year. And I guess I kind of want to know, what do you think led Jesus to that decision? What kind of works when pushing for environmental change?
1: That's kind of the million dollar question. And I I definitely don't have the full answer to it. We, we did achieve that. And I think it was down to some really, really hard-working staff, the Bursa, also student campaigning, our MCR and JCR Green officers have been pushing for this really strongly, and I definitely stand on the shoulders of the Green officer who came before me. And overwhelming evidence of student support, so OGM motions that were passed, emails that were sent, all of that kind of coalesces to achieve that sort of outcome.
3: Earlier this year, Cambridge Uni announced that it was going to divest from all direct and indirect investment in fossil fuels by 2030. So what are your thoughts on it? Do you think it goes far enough? And what more needs to be done?
0: As a group, we were very welcoming of this decision. Part of that was because we have been pushing for it for five years, and we have got very little so far. This is a a very big win for us, and we're, we're very happy with that. Having said that, the commitment to full divestment is only by 2030 which is really not soon enough. And that's something other groups have picked up on as well as other people hearing this news. I don't think there's a good logical reason why it needs to be 2030 and couldn't be 2025 or couldn't be 2023. I get that they have a big endowment fund and these kinds of things can't happen just like overnight, but they also don't need 10 years to happen.
1: So I think the decision to divest is a huge win and down to the tireless campaigning of many generations of student activists, as well as hardworking staff within the university. I think it's a really, really important step forward. What we have to remember with these distant targets is every second that we're still funding the fossil fuel industry, that we're still contributing to climate breakdown, there are communities in the world on the front lines of this crisis that are suffering. So if 2030 is genuinely the earliest possible date that the university could divest by, then I suppose that's something we have to accept But if it's not, it should be done as quickly as possible. And that's why colleges need to be divesting much earlier than that, because our investment models are much more um, straightforward because we're smaller financial units. We don't have the same fund of funds model that the university does. We can't just act like a sheep. And because the university have said 2030, think, oh, 10 years gives us a long time. Let's do 2030. That seems sensible. That seems like what the crowd are doing, because we're a fundamentally different differently structured institution. We also know that practically it can be done. Clare Hall have divested fully, Queen's College have divested fully, Christ's are divesting by 2030, even though that's way too late. The colleges can definitely do it much more rapidly.
3: Extinction Rebellions are one of the more controversial environmental movements, in part due to their sometimes disruptive methods. There's an active wing in Cambridge, And one of their notable demonstrations has been the digging up of Trinity College lawn earlier this year in February. An anonymous spokesperson from Extinction Rebellion Youth Cambridge speaks to us about their work. Their voice has been distorted to protect their identity.
4: What are Extinction Rebellion's demands in relation to divestment at Cambridge? And do you think that the recent announcement by the university to divest from all fossil fuels by 2030 goes far enough?
5: So our demands are quite simple. We're asking for full divestment and uh, no future investment in the following things, which are all fossil fuel industries. And that's not just extractive fossil fuel industries. It's also the companies that refine the fossil fuels and sell them on and and the tech companies that help them extract better. Um, Also all companies involved in biodiversity destruction or degradation, uh, the arms trade, which is one of the biggest users of fossil fuels in the world. Um, intensive animal farming, and all other ecocidal companies and industries. The follow-up demand for that is to use this opportunity to reinvest that money that's freed up in um companies that are ethical, and have a positive impact on people and planet, biodiversity, uphold all human rights, and of course, in things which are zero carbon. So, there's there's quite a lot of room for for the university to do do what it likes and still make. Plenty of money for itself, which is its primary concern. The 2030 target is basically completely unacceptable. That's that's a decade away. You know, Bangladesh, a third of Bangladesh was underwater a few months ago. California's had <laughs> a mega fire so large that it's now being classified, I think, as the world's first gigafire. We have time to um, continue investing in these in these companies that are destroying the planet when people are already dying.
4: So sorry, just to confirm, do you think? Divestment should start from now.
5: Well, our demands were that they divested, so they announced the divestment by July um, this year, which they didn't do, of course. Um, and then the other part was that they actually finished the divesting by the end of two thousand twenty, and we believe they've taken part of that on board. Um, in that they've they said they'll divest from some of the worst fund managers they have, um, who invest heavily in were traditional energy so they're, they're digested from those within the end into 2020 but you know they're going to take 10 years doing the rest we we, we understand it's a fund of funds model and it's more complex than most universities endowment funds most colleges endowment funds but it does not take 10 years if you if they if they really wanted to do this they could do it in less than a year and we'll see be here in 10 years time who knows
4: and um. For this episode, we've spoken to a, a number of other environmental groups involved in Cambridge. So does Extinction Rebellion have any relationship with, for instance, Cambridge Zero Carbon or any other environmental
5: groups? Uh, we don't have a formal relationship with Cambridge Zero Carbon, although we are in touch with them. Um, and we think their reports that they've written on the university um, are excellent and they were a really good source uh, when we started this campaign. Extinction Rebellion in general is a movement of movements, however, so we do work with lots of other movements, both in Cambridge and across the country and across the world. Um, in Cambridge, some of these are uh, Movement Against Racism, um, Cambridge for Black Lives, um, or oh, Global Justice Now Youth. So there are a lot of justice ones we work with, and then there are other environmental groups we do work with as well. But it's yeah, it's... um. They, they range from kind of official relationships to non-official ones.
4: Moving on to broader questions about Extinction Rebellion, do you believe that direct action is now the only effective method that environmental groups can take? And do you think you can make a
5: difference from the outside? It's not the only option, but it is crucial to have it in there. Um, and we believe is the most effective way of making change happen. And because we only have a few years left, according to the IPCC, to make change, to stop a runaway greenhouse effect, um, really we need to be using the best tactics rather than the tactics that work but take a lot longer. So people have spent their whole lives campaigning to get corporations and governments to do the right thing. And, and some of these people have moved into XR um, because they're, they're so kind of disillusioned with these techniques that they've been trying and it's important they tried them because now we know they don't work at least they don't work by themselves that is so petitions um you know traditional peaceful protest where you stand on the side of the road and you don't get in anyone's way that that doesn't doesn't make anyone you know it doesn't disrupt them so they don't think about it so it has no effect so the only option left is non-violent direct action because you know we don't believe in violence um it's not both tactically and morally it doesn't work But non-violent direct action is shown to work. Um, It was used in the civil rights movement. The suffragettes used it to get women the vote. You know, globally, these these we're just using the same tactics as them.
4: And in February of this year, Extinction Rebellion dug up Trinity College's lawn. Do you worry that public displays like this may turn public opinion against your organisation, or do you think it's important to kind of shock the public and institutions
5: we do very much think it's important to shock people because we really do not have much time left we are sort of a popular movement but we're also not here to do feel-good activism we're not here to make everyone like us because that we don't have the time for that so you know digging up trinity college's lawn was entirely non-violent entirely peaceful that lawn was of zero value um in terms of biodiversity uh, and Actions like this are what gets the news. Then it let us go on to talk about the climate crisis. Unless you do something like this, that action got global coverage. It, you know, it was reported on everywhere from here to Australia, and suddenly everyone was talking about Trinity College, third biggest landowner in the UK, big investor in fossil fuels, and also um, committing acts of land injustice, where, you know, it takes land that other people rely on and love. And it's going to destroy it and turn it into a lorry park, which is specifically what that protest was about. And, and we, you know, we said that, you know, if you're going to do that, then we're going to bring it home to you. And we're going to go to your hired lawn. Um, and, that, and that got people talking. People people had no idea that was going on until we did that. And, and, and the effect that this has, protests like this, is that it raises the general awareness of the climate crisis. It's not supposed to necessarily, I mean, we'd like it to, but it's not necessarily supposed to make people like XR. Because we are, you know, we are the, we are the alarm. No one likes hearing the fire alarm, but it makes you realise there's a problem and you need to put the fire out.
4: And there have been claims that Extinction Rebellion can be quite an exclusive organisation. So one example is because you're often kind of brushing with the law, it may discourage um, ethnic minorities, those from a working class background who are maybe less safe around the police to take part in your protests. Um, do you think Extinction Rebellion can do more to be inclusive, given as well that people who are going to be most affected by climate change is likely to be uh, poorer people or ethnic minorities?
5: Uh, yes, it's a very good point. So um, I will quickly add that I'm, I'm not just an Extinction Rebellion. I'm from Extinction Rebellion Youth Cambridge as well. Um, And we the youth movement is specifically much more about climate justice rather than just climate change. Um, And we have always been critical of Extinction rebellion groups that are not putting climate justice as one of their top priorities. Um, But of course, we also can do more. But um, I'll I'll speak generally about XR now. So we we do recognise that this is a criticism of us. Um, And we are in a process of learning. Uh, and I think we've actually, we've learned a lot in the last, well, since our October rebellion. You know, back then people were singing <laughs> that, we, you know, we love the police, things like that. With the, I mean, the idea being that the police are people too and they need to realise there's a climate crisis. But it was very naive in terms of the way the police interact with uh, people of colour, indigenous people. In a rebellion that's just gone, the, the tone is completely different. We know the police are not there to help us. We know the police... Are systemically racist and um and we call them out for this. And it was actually, although the numbers were lower because of COVID, of course, um, it was actually our most diverse rebellion ever. Um and it had several actions and even entire days dedicated to raising voices of the global south to talk about what's happened to them. Um and and we've and we've had to make accommodations for them if they if they feel unable to actually attend protests because of the heavy police presence, you know, we've we've done things to enable them to still be able to take part with lower risk. But, you know, we we do also know that no form of protest is accessible to everyone. So we do try our best to balance NVDA with um, lots of other roles that people can take part in if um, they can't risk being arrested, which is, you know, a, a situation for a lot of people. We took part in actions outside the Home Office, which were against... Very poor immigration policies and trying to deport people. So we do feel Exiles come a long way, and it's definitely got further to go. But we are we are trying to make it a more diverse place.
4: Evan Rowe tells us about zero carbon stance on Extinction Rebellion.
0: So I'll I'll start by saying I think Exiles tactics. I'm fully on board with with the things they do. I think that they. I don't want to be mean. I think they can be a bit of a blunt instrument. Right? They they go and cause mass destruction mm-hmm. but i think that's a really important part of, of what is needed in the climate movement i don't think it's the only thing we need but we do need this big mm. i think we do need people to go and dig up trinity's lawn to say like come on what what the hell are you doing yeah i i think the urgency of the crisis is more than enough to demand that kind of action we do communicate with xr and we do coordinate what what we're doing because we don't want to step on each other's toes too much and i think there have been times in the past where that communication hasn't been there sufficiently in our actions of like cross wires or something but that's why that sort of communication is really important and finally i'd, I'd say that i i hear the points around the whiteness of, of xr and it's difficult because i don't think it's a problem that is specific to extinction rebellion i think it's a general problem within the climate movement that it is overly white it is not committed enough to anti-racism and to looking at the Imperialistic and colonialistic angles of the climate crisis. So that's something we, as Zero Carbon, have been really trying to focus on. Having said that, I think in terms of the different XR groups you'll see, I personally have been quite on board with a lot of XR Cambridge and specifically XR Cambridge youth's messaging around the climate crisis. Um, they seem to have quite a, a social justice orientated one. They will often call out the bullshit from the rest of XR that happens, which I think is also necessary.
4: Extinction Rebellion aren't the only campaign involved in direct action, with the Jesus College Climate Justice Campaign also using similar methods.
3: You're one of the college campaigns that has had more visibility, in part due to your eye-catching demonstrations. So why do you feel that protesting, rather than, for example, going through the college's more bureaucratic channels, is the right way to go?
1: So I think what our campaign is emphatically not is solely about protesting on the margins and refusing to engage constructively in the bureaucratic official channels that exist. What we're trying to achieve is huge and it would be a massive, massive win and we understand that we need to work for that and we need to demonstrate in every possible way that we can that the college community is united around it. So we absolutely will be doing the public demonstrations which hopefully give us some media attention uh, and improve the visibility of the campaign so that We can get more people involved, but we also absolutely will be engaging constructively with college staff because we know we're working towards a shared goal, which is a college which genuinely meets its responsibilities in terms of climate justice, ensures its own future, because as much as Cambridge as a city is fairly insulated from the worst effects of climate breakdown now, that won't always be the case. And that's a shared goal.
3: Do you worry, though, that you might be alienating maybe some potential supporters?
1: I think... We've really tried to avoid unreasonably negative campaigning. It's not about a criticism of Jesus College management. In fact, we have really hardworking staff who've been very receptive. What this campaign is about is acknowledging that Jesus College, like institutions across the world, just needs to step its approach to the climate crisis up. We're experiencing another crisis at the moment, the pandemic. That feels very immediate, but the climate crisis is also there and Of course, actually, they're interconnected because we know that biodiversity, destruction and various other processes associated with global heating and the climate crisis are fueling and making pandemics like the one we're experiencing more likely. But we have to meet the scale of the climate crisis with the same sort of emergency response that our college has very effectively implemented in relation to coronavirus
3: What's it like emotionally organising all these protests and constantly pushing and fighting for your voices to be heard?
1: To be honest, yeah, it can be quite disheartening. In the Cambridge context, these are institutions that have existed for hundreds of years. And that embeds a certain level of institutional caution around big changes. And I understand that. But I think what this crisis demands, because there are these timelines that just can't be, we can't tread over those lines. Otherwise, scientists have told us again and again what's going to happen. So sometimes when you feel like the sense of urgency that you feel isn't reciprocated amongst some of the key decision makers, that can be quite disheartening. But I actually believe that everyone is working towards a shared goal. I think Jesus College will divest very shortly, and we just need to keep on making our presence known and doing everything we can to bring that about as quickly as possible.
3: Many environmental activists are keen to emphasize how environmental justice is a collective endeavor that stretches beyond Cambridge University. The continuation of these campaigns is reliant on momentum from younger generations and these generations have been actively campaigning in part through the weekly Fridays for Future school strikes. We speak to Jeanette and Luana from Cambridge Youth Strike for Climate, who tell us about their work with the City Council and their
6: hopes for the future.
4: When did you first start attending these youth strikes?
6: So uh, I started striking in February 2019. I remember when I heard that um, there was going to be this nationwide youth strike for climate, and I was like, what? What's that? Uh, so I, and then I did a bit of research and found out about Greta Thunberg, and how she'd been striking for months, and I was like, "Oh, okay, It's actually a, a thing," and picking up speed quite a lot. So uh, I remember, like, I came to Castle Hill in Cambridge with my friends, and we were just standing there, uh, waiting for what was going to happen, seeing like, what what was, were people going to come? What was it going to be like? And I distinctly remember uh, looking down the hill and hearing this huge noise as kids. Hundreds and hundreds of kids came marching up the hill, up to the council building, and it was just so incredible and inspiring, It just the energy, the passion, and the right the amount of people we managed to get together. And it was like, yeah, this is we're doing this. We can push something to happen. There were the odd person now and then who are who are kind of concerned about them. Um, oh, you're missing out education. Oh, you're thinking about your exams you you know think like this and that but on the whole part on the on the whole most people were very supportive of our movement and i remember like coming back uh to school after, uh coming back the next day at school and teachers were like gave so much praise to people who went on the strikes it was um quite a supportive atmosphere
4: so i was wondering how much central organization went into the strikes was there kind of one team organizing it or did people more show up on an individual basis
2: i'm not sure how it how like the first one started but i found out through some friends who found out presumably elsewhere but more recently like the eco councils taken over organizing strikes in Cambridge, at least, with other youth strike for climate organisations around England and the UK.
6: Yeah, so um, here in Cambridge, we have um, the Cambridge Schools Eco Council, which is like a group of students uh, coming together each month to discuss like climate issues in Cambridge and Cambridgeshire, and organising strikes, and also doing more beyond the strikes, like taking part in community events. Uh, talking to businesses and councillors and just like generally spreading awareness of climate change and like in a positive way and like what we can do to have a positive impact on our planet.
4: And um, for both of you, what are your
6: demands? So uh, seven demands for council are pledged to confirm the council will never develop on the green belt, commit to carbon neutrality well before 2030, reporting transparently to the public every six months, Ensure uh, local climate finance, so potentially like collect regular money to be spent on climate change programs. Support local renewables. Set up initiatives to convert all roofs in newly developed housing. Support local renewables. Scale up initiatives to convert all roofs in newly developed housing and current housing in Cambridge to living green, solar, or reflective or heat reflective white, and to support sustainable buildings. Make a publicly available climate plan for the next decade make regular updates on the plan and implement on local levels together with the advisory council, make a local green transport accessible and support local and independent businesses, giving them full advice and support, both physically and financially, to do business in a net zero way.
2: Last month, we had one meeting with a group of city councillors over Zoom, which we live streamed. It was basically us asking them Questions about what they were going to do to mitigate, I think is the correct word, the climate crisis in Cambridge. And then more recently we had a second follow-up meeting with them where we further discussed the demands and they've invited us to sit in the Environment and Sustainability Committee meeting later this month.
4: So have you felt quite happy about your responses with the council?
2: They were good responses,
4: but some of them,
2: as you can probably imagine, they did either dodge questions or
4: focus on the wrong thing or not answer them completely. And are the strikes still continuing? Like, what has been the impact of COVID and stuff like that?
2: In March, we decided the day before the the scheduled strike that we would convert it to online because it was just we thought it was getting too dangerous
6: so we've had an online strike since every month uh where we ask people to send in photos to make a collage based on a theme around climate issues and we ask asked people to send in videos of speeches music poems all related to climate change and you can find all of that on our website campschoolsecocouncil.uk
3: What is the future of the Zero Carbon Society?
0: Sure, so we're going to be focusing on a few things, and the bringing forward of the 2030 date will be one of them. We're also very much interested in the colleges of the university, what they are invested in. There's 30-plus colleges, and I think a handful of them have committed to divestment, and a lot of them have very big endowments, like Trinity College, for instance, has an endowment in the billions, which is more than most other universities, in fact. So I think we really need to get these colleges to commit to divestment. Another thing we're going to be starting to work on, and this is part of what People and Planet, which is the UK-wide university divestment campaign, their next campaign is looking at broader extractivist ties that universities have. Um, So it's looking beyond just fossil fuels alone. What are the links with kind of mining companies and other extractive industries that are, again maybe they're not contributing to global warming, but they're still decimating parts of the global south. It's in a very similar vein to what we've seen happen with fossil fuels, but this time it may even be fueling our solar panels or our electric cars. Yeah, what we really want to do is look at pressuring the university to cut their ties with these broader extractivist industries uh, rather than just fossil fuel companies and get them to focus on ensuring a just transition away from fossil fuels that centres the lives of people across the global south. Uh, Yeah, just to say that if if people are interested in joining the cause, we're an open campaign. Look us up online. We meet most Saturdays virtually at the moment, and we've got lots of plans coming up.
4: Are you feeling hopeful for your generation?
5: So I think it's important to distinguish between two types of hope here. There's there's passive hope and there's active hope. And... I think that passive hope is really dangerous. Or the belief that somebody else is going to save the world for you. I don't have that kind of hope at all. Contrary to that, active hope. I have hope, and a lot of us in Extinction Rebellion have hope, that through our actions, enough people will realise they need to take action themselves. And if we do, then we do have a chance to you know, uncover the polluters, uncover the people who are pretending to be certain people's friends but are not and are perpetuating all kinds of oppression, including the climate crisis, but also racism. You know, they're very linked issues.
6: It depends on uh, what part of our generation we, we we mean, because chances are our generation who live in the UK are going to be OK. Not necessarily fine. We probably will almost definitely, certainly be affected by climate crisis, but chances are we will not be affected as negatively as those of our generation who live in the global south and in the these biomes that will be lost forever
2: I think most people in power still have the you're too young for this the adults are talking attitude with us because most of us are either just turning 18 some of us are still in primary school like they still kind of see us as like troublemaking teenagers
6: on the one hand um, the prim- like politicians in the UK have started to, to verbally acknowledge that the climate crisis is a thing. But on the other hand, the UK is the fifth richest country in the world. Uh, we have some of the most uh, advanced scientific and technological institutions. We have like, Cambridge University, who had geniuses like Isaac Newton and uh, Stephen Hawkins, who have changed our view of science. All we need is the will from the people at the top to actually make this, like, green industrial revolution happen. But it's not really happening right now. There is a lot of people out there who want to make us seem like hypocrites. They want us to, they want to make it seem like climate justice is impossible, you're such blue sky thinkers. But if we, like, actually take a responsible stride forward, we can show, not tell them that it is 100% possible.
2: I'd say that, like, if anyone wants to, like, join in and help, the easiest thing you can do, absolute simplest thing, is, like, look at what you do now. What, like, what do you eat? What do you wear? Where do you buy it from? What, What company makes it? And, like, see if that, if those things are okay with you. Like, we can't all, control what companies do, but they'll listen if we use our wallets. When demand
4: changes, the supply changes. Clearly, the 2030 decision to divest is a positive one and comes off the back of much work from students and staff alike. Such a decision marks a recognised responsibility from the university to environmental justice and has, in part, helped provide further momentum for college justice campaigns. But
3: this can't be the end of the story. As Zach emphasises, colleges too have environmental responsibility and need to
4: look at their investments. In addition to this, there are concerns that the university's response does not recognise the extent of the climate emergency.
3: And this emphasis on the need to act now is something shared globally, particularly with youth campaigners calling on institutions to radically change.
4: Thank you for listening. You can read
3: more on this topic at varsity.co.uk.
4: Thank you to our contributors, a spokesperson for Cambridge Zero Carbon Society, Evan Rowe, Jesus College Student Union Green Officer and representative of the Jesus College Climate Justice Campaign, Zach Coleman, an anonymous spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion Youth Cambridge and Jeanette and Luana from Cambridge Youth Strike for Climate. Thanks also to our
3: production team. Matthew Cavallini, Georgia Goebel, Thea Melton, Tilly Head, Cameron White, Kate Pruden, Theo Fitzpatrick, Alex Oxford, Juliette Babinski, Sorrel Fenelon and Matthew Jeffries. We'll be back next week. Subscribe to our podcast
6: or visit our Facebook page where you can leave any thoughts.